Good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you are wondering if Pastor Chris just got a lot more handsome, you are mistaken. I am not Pastor Chris. <laughs> My name is Matt Morgan, Pastor Matt Morgan from the Warrensburg campus. <laughs> And this is my last sermon I'm preaching today. <laughs> but it's been a pleasure, and I get to kick off our second sermon of the series, Advancing God's Grace. I'm going to focus on the phrase, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And it's on this phrase that Jesus faces two realities of the cross, two realities. And that first reality was being, as being Jesus experienced abandonment. Jesus experienced abandonment. We're going to go to Matthew 27, verses 35 through 37, and then we're going to jump to 45 through 46. So let's read that. It says, after they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus's head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 45, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land and until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Allahi, Allahi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder, Jesus, why did you leave a perfect situation? You were in heaven, you were at the right hand of God, and you chose to leave and come down in the form of human flesh, a broken and corrupt world, and to just all for the purpose of suffering. We know that Jesus came to bring hope. We know he came to heal. And we know that he came to set the captive free, just to bring us closer to God. But in order to do all of this, he had to die. And as we read in Matthew 27, we're at that crucial moment where Jesus is about to die. Up until this point, Jesus had already suffered enough. He had suffered a whole lot. He had been arrested in the middle of the night. He was given a rigged trial. He was transported to Pilate, then back to Herod, then back to Pilate again, traveling back and forth between each other. And then he was flogged. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He was spit on. He was mocked. And the people were ripping at his beard, pulling off his face. And after all of that, Jesus was forced to carry a heavy cross, the very object that was meant to kill him. And so Jesus is hanging there. He has, the feet, he has his hands and his feet nailed to the cross. And he's standing there and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And I ask some of you, how many of you relate to that feeling of abandonment today? Maybe you are going through something and you just feel complete abandonment. But it's in this abandonment that we see Jesus in his humanity. That we see Jesus in a vulnerable state. But we also can relate to Jesus in this moment. How many of you have heard this phrase about leadership that says, don't ask someone to do something unless you've done it yourself? Yeah. Yes. So this is something that I admire about Jesus, the servant leadership, because not only does Jesus do what he asks his followers to do, but he experiences the same thing that his followers are going to experience. In other words, Jesus can relate to the experiences that we are going through. The Bible echoes this in Hebrews 4.15. It says this, it says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. 
So in Matthew 27, like, like I said before, we have the sense that we can ex- relate with Jesus because he is experiencing complete abandonment. It's not just like I feel alone, it's just like a little sadness, but it is one of those just worst things that Jesus may have experienced. In the book Seven Mile Miracle, Stephen Furtick kind of echoes this. He says, it's safe to say that the greatest pain Jesus endured had nothing to do with the whips and thorns. It had nothing to do with this asphyxiation. As awful as all that was, the worst aspect of crucifixion for Jesus was going through separation from his Father. And I know that there are some of you here today that are experiencing this abandonment. They may be experiencing anxiety or depression. But let me tell you something. You do not need to feel guilty because you are depressed or abandoned. You do not need to feel guilty because of that. You do not need to feel like you do not have enough faith, that you do not have enough trust in Jesus. In fact, the Bible mentions many people who go through this similar situation. There's Job, then we have Joseph, and even as you read through the Psalms, as you are reading the language of David, he is going through trials of abandonment and feelings of depression and hopelessness. But what do these characters, what do these people do in that moment? They acknowledge their feelings. Then they confess their feelings to God. And then they turn their focus, they redirect their feelings to God's goodness and his faithfulness. It's important to acknowledge what you're feeling, but you have to realize that's not a place where you're supposed to stay. Somebody needs to hear this. God isn't offended by your raw emotions. He's the healer of them. I thought I was going to get a lot more amens on that. But that's okay. Not a lot of people talk during heart surgery. Reality number two, Jesus focuses on faith. The hard part about being a Christian is that Jesus promises, he promises that there's going to be persecution and that there's going to be hard times. So much so that Jesus tells us that we need to count the cost. So much so that we need to count the cost even before committing to be a Christian. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but let's read Luke 14. It says, And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. I know these verses sound harsh, but Jesus wants you to face the reality of the situation. Or as a throwback from our last series, he wants you to face facts. Anyone remember that from Nehemiah? You need to face facts. Jesus wants you to face the facts. He wants you to know what you're getting into as a Christian. Because sometimes there will be persecution. Sometimes you will have a feeling of abandonment. But God told me something. As, as you are looking at the cost, as you are looking at what it means to be a Christian, sometimes you can feel overwhelmed. And one time I was looking at that, looking at the cost, and God told me something. He said, you should count the cost. But you need to focus on the savings. You should count the cost, but you need to focus on the savings. You see, this hit me on a lot of different levels, but let me just give you one example. As you may have heard, I don't know if you guys know this, but we are launching a campus in Warrensburg. And who knows that's a really easy thing to do. Super easy. No, it's not. It's expensive. And, and when you look at all the aspects of this, and I, and I promise you, I pray for Pastor Chris every day about this because I know the weight of this. But when you are launching a campus, there seems to be a heavy expense. There's the cost of money. 
There's a cost of time and energy. There's a cost of sacrifice. There's a cost of resources. There's a cost of asking everyone to hand out little invite cards. But when I focus on the savings, when I focus on the people of Warrensburg, the 61% who have no affiliation with God, the people who are going to hell, when I focus on that savings, the cost means nothing. It's not re- easy to readjust your focus. It's going to take faith. It's this kind of faith that's going to get you through the hard times. But faith isn't blind. I know sometimes people will use faith as an example. Oh, just have faith. You know, I don't know what time you're going through now, but just have faith. But I want, to, I want to encourage you today. Faith is not blind. Let me tell you what faith is. Faith is remembering that God has been and is faithful and you are choosing to rely on him. Faith is not just, oh, I hope this is going to happen. This is, it's saying, God, you have been so faithful to me in the past. Every situation that got me up to this point, you have been faithful, you have been good, you have had mercy, and now I am going to choose to ignore the things that are distracting me, and I'm going to choose to rely on you because you have been, and you still are faithful. That is faith. As I read the Bible, and I read through my devotions, sometimes I go through a specific book of the Bible, the book of Chronicles. How many of you find the book of Chronicles really exciting when you get there? If you don't don't know why people are laughing, the book of Chronicles is that book of the Bible where it lists the genealogies of people. It says, this person begot this person, begot this person. It's just an old way, ancient way of saying this par- person parented this person who parented this person. And, and, and I, I don't know about you, but when I encounter this section of the Bible, I just tend to skip over it. <laughs> I know I will go to the altar later praying for forgiveness for skipping over this. But I don't, tip- I don't typically find that exciting. I don't typically get a lot of faith from this genealogy situation. But if you're like me and you struggle, I want to encourage you through the genealogies. And, we're, and, and in order for me to do that, I'm going to jump to uh, Matthew 1.17. Now, before I read it, I'm going to give you some context. 1 through 16 has a genealogy in it. This person begot this person begot this person. All the way from Adam to Jesus. And it just lists this genealogy. And let's read verse 17. It says... All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Now, when you read that, what sticks out to you? The number 14, right? The number 14. They say it like three times. And so... I said to myself, this must mean something important. For them to list the number 14 this many times, it must be important. And so I decided to do some research. And if you don't know anything about the Hebrew language of which Matthew was written about, how many of you know it wasn't written in English? The old KJV scrolls is not really a thing. But it's in Hebrew. And uh, the Hebrew language puts a numerical value, a number value, to letters and to words. And so the number seven, as an example, it means an oath or a covenant or a promise. It means completion. 
So usually when you see the number seven, it's like it represents God, his completeness, and the covenant oath and all that stuff. But when I saw the number 14, I was like, I really need to know what this means. So I looked it up, and the, number, the meaning behind the number 14 is associated with a date. And that date is called Nisan 14. It's the date on the Jewish calendar. And on that date is a date that was is, is a day that was celebrated yesterday. And that was Passover. Nisan 14 is Passover. And so if you don't know anything about Passover, Passover is when the Jews, they celebrate the freedom that they got, the deliverance that God gave them through Egypt. They celebrate that moment. That they, they focus on the hard times that they went through. You know, they take some, they have some uh, parsley and they dip it in salt water and they eat it and it's really bitter. That represents the tears. And they, 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 they focus on the savings and, the, and the, they have this little apple like walnut honey mix, and they eat it, and it's really good. Um, but they, they celebrate this whole situation of remembering of God delivering them. And then at the end of it, they look for a Messiah. They have a look, like the youngest of the child, he goes out the door, and they say, is Elijah here, or the prophet here? And he's like, no, he's not here. And they close the door. And they spend this whole time on Nisan 14, Passover, of celebrating Passover, sorry. But, uh, but because of that, the number 14 is associated with deliverance, redemption, but it also symbolizes keeping a promise. Keeping a promise. So do you want to know why this genealogy in Matthew is so exciting? Why it's so awesome? It's not because you're just saying, oh, he, Jesus has this great bloodline, but it's a keeping of a promise. It's listed, four, 14 is listed three times because it's a keeping of a promise. It's a promise that was made to Abraham where he says, I will make you many men, many sons like stars. It's a promise made to David. God says, I will make you a Davidic king. And it's the promise to the Israelites. I will make you a Davidic king, one that will rule forever and it will never fail. This promise, this genealogy is important because people, the Israelites in this time, have lost hope. You see, by the end of the New Test- Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, 420 years have passed. And before that 420 years, they were in captivity. And when they were in captivity, they were hearing from prophets like Elijah. I mean, not Elijah, I'm sorry. They were hearing from prophets <laughs> from Isaiah. And they were hearing from prophets from like Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And these prophets are saying, the Messiah is coming. Your deliverer is coming. And then, for us, the, New Testament, the Old Testament ends. And the 420 years passes. And the New Testament begins. So all this time, they're hearing, the, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. But how many of you know, after generation and generation of people dying, you're having more and more people, that they're starting to lose hope. They're starting to forget the promise. They're saying, 420 years has passed. Jesus isn't coming. They didn't have to say Jesus, I'm sorry. The Messiah isn't coming. 420 years has passed. I, don't, I think that Isaiah was wrong. But how many of you know that God had a promise? You see, when Adam and Eve sinned and they separated mankind from God, everything seemed hopeless. They seemed abandoned. But God had a promise. You see, when the Israelites were cornered by the Egyptians, 
and the Red Sea, they were worried and they felt, they felt abandoned, but God had a promise. When Noah, he felt alone, there was a flood coming. He felt like he was the only people who, were, who was living for God, but God had a promise. And things looked desperate for Jesus. As he's sitting there, he's sitting there on the cross, he's in pain, he's in agony, he knows he's about to die, and in that moment, in that moment of pain, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's getting ready to die, but how many of you know that God had a promise? So I know that you may be saying to yourself right now, I feel abandoned. I feel hopeless. My, my finances aren't so good right now. My addiction is overcoming me right now. My home life is bad. There's health issues in my family right now. I don't know what's going on. But I am here to tell you right now that God has a promise. And, this be, and all this because Jesus came and he died on the cross and he sacrificed himself for us. Jesus willingly gave himself to die on the cross because he knew he was dying for all of mankind. Jesus knew he was coming back to life. He focused on the faith of that. Jesus knew you were going to be in a place of shame. Jesus knew you were going to be in a place of abandonment. And still, even with all that, Jesus knew that there was going to be a situation that he had to step in in your place. He knew he had to step in your place and die. He counted the cost. He counted the cost of the whippings, of the torture, of the shame, but he focused on the savings and he focused on you. He focused on saving you. You see, I don't know what your situation is today, but I believe God had this word. I believe that he even orchestrated that, that worship set that talked about breakthroughs so many times, that talked about broken chains because Jesus came on this earth to die for you. Jesus came on this earth to take your abandonment upon himself. Jesus came to this earth because he knew that in your depression, that in your anxiety, that in your circumstances, you did not have to stay there. That he was going to give you a way to redirect your focus to God. And so if I could have the prayer partners come up. I want to take this time to offer an invitation to you. If you are here today and you've never accepted Jesus into your heart, if for some reason you've been putting that off aside, I want to give you an invitation that Jesus is here for you now and he's ready to accept you in his arms. All you have to do is accept Jesus into your heart. And if you've accepted Jesus in your heart, but maybe you're feeling this, this, this lostness, this, this abandonment, this hurt, this I don't know what's going on. God, why have you abandoned me? And you are ready to redirect your focus onto God's promises. If you're ready to realign those things, you're ready to say, God, I am hurting. I confess that to you. But here I am at the altar, God. Would you heal me? Would you heal my emotions? That's for that second group of people. First one, accepting Jesus. Second, a place of healing that Jesus has brought to you through death. The altars are open.